0: You know, the current global footprint of agriculture is massive. It's pushing us to the brink on climate. Farmers currently manage 52% of our ecosystems across the continent. As next-gen farmers, there's a lot that we can do on our own, and we are doing it, but the challenges we face are bigger than us. so important that we support our next generation
1: of regenerative and agroecological farmers. Hi, I'm Susie.
2: And I'm James.
1: And you're listening to Soils for Life. Each episode we're bringing you stories about soil, the opportunities in the ground and the challenges above it. Farming is one of the most essential yet undervalued professions. The capacity of the farming sector to attract and retain young farmers is a critical issue for all of us. Australian agriculture currently has a labour shortage of over 100,000 people.
2: We all rely on farmers to produce our food and fibre, yet our farming population is ageing, recruitment is dwindling and the children of farmers are moving to urban areas, sometimes even encouraged by concerned parents.
1: As farmers are the largest land managers in Australia, We are also relying on these new farmers to repair our soils, rivers and biodiversity that continues to decline due to urban sprawl and industrial agriculture. This is no small ask. Two things
2: are clear. We need more farmers and we need them to have a mindset and practice that regenerates soils and landscapes.
1: A recent report published by the Farmer Incubator in partnership with Young Farmers Connect highlights the barriers and challenges for the next generation of farmers.
2: The stories shared in this episode offer insights into how these new and young regenerative farmers sought to overcome the unique set of challenges facing them.
1: But first, let's hear from the author of the report, Regeneration Growing New Farmers, Tanya Massey, who is a researcher, writer and farmer from the Monaro. She's also advisor to Sustainable Table. Tanya left the family farm to study but the land called her home.
0: Our purpose in undertaking this research is really to understand this question of how to best to support and grow our next generation of regenerative farmers. And what we sort of heard across the board was that there are some pretty major challenges facing our new farming generation and those that are working to support them. Something that came through really strongly through all our interviews and conversations is that this is a real time of reckoning in Australian agriculture for our future generation farmers. You know, we're trying to find a new way forward, the truth of our settler colonial ongoing history and to find ways of doing the work of repair that's desperately needed. We learned that we really can't be talking about the challenges of land access and barriers to entering farming without squaring up to the fact that we are
1: farming on land whose sovereignty was never ceded. We have a lot of healing to do and stories to be shared. One young indigenous farmer, Joshua Gilbert, is a passionate advocate for transforming the way we talk about agriculture through indigenous wisdom and values. A Warrami man, farmer and academic, Josh's family have been farming the land for 60,000 years.
3: Josh Gilbert, I'm a Warrami man from the north coast of New South Wales. Both parents are Aboriginal, both Warrami people, both families were farmers in their own rights and have got 60 plus thousand years of farming there. An early recorded interaction between my dad's family and AACO, the Australian Agricultural Company on Warramai country up here, um, that stems back to 1825, where they started sheep farming together after a bit of conflict. And uh, I guess the rest is history. Um, my family's been on the land in ag ever since then. Um, personally, I, I didn't see a pathway there when I was younger, but have now definitely stepped into that and, and that's you know, my life now and, and certainly something I love doing.
1: Josh believes we have a real opportunity to start building relationships between Australian agriculture and Indigenous mobs across the country. His work combines old and new, weaving them together to develop new insights and findings which will provide pathways for new and emerging farmers.
3: I think that, for me, regenerative ag will provide the gateway for us as Indigenous people to step into the conversation there. I hesitate to say that they're a, um, a combined system or that even regenerative ag is completely Indigenous-informed. Because in my eyes, if regenerative ag was you know Indigenous-designed, even, that it would be led by Indigenous people going forward. I'm super optimistic that all of that bringing together can only mean that Indigenous people will have a fair seat at the table going forward, and that through our conversations between us all, that we can develop an agricultural system that will stand the test of time.
2: Many young farmers find their way onto the land through generational succession. For Harriet Finlayson, a young woman from the New South Wales rangelands, farming was always going to be part of her life.
4: It was always my chores as a kid to look after the chickens and all the, the pets around the house. And my parents had a accommodation enterprise for 12 years. So I was pretty young when I started selling eggs to the people that stayed here. And I've been away and tried to do other things, but I've always had in the back of my mind that I would end up back at home. I live on Bacara Plains, which is near Brewarrina, uh, northwest New South Wales. We have cattle, sheep and poultry here and we've been farming it regeneratively now for over 20 years. And I've grown up thinking that this is the normal way of doing things. Farming to improve soil health and increase biodiversity and that's exciting and that's a fun job. Like it's exciting. I think that you have to have a passion to stick with it, but the work itself is it's very hard to not be passionate about it.
1: Harriet has been raised by her parents with a regenerative mindset. Another Soils for Life case study involves a first-generation farming family who moved out of the suburbs and were transformed by the land.
5: My name's Adam Lilliman. I live on a farm in Canberra called Amberley Farm. It's a family-run farm. My brother, my sister and my parents live here. And we're relatively new to farming. We bought the place in 2012 as, as a family. Started off as a sort of hobby lifestyle block and has moved into genuine agriculture and and a business. Uh, We have cattle and we produce pasture raised eggs. So my dad's passion is the regen side. So he read all the books and he's an engineer as well. So he he took a very sort of evidence based approach to these things. And he went off and learned how to manage cattle in a way that's regenerative. And and so that's sort of rubbed off on, on me. In terms of of learning to farm, it was a trial and error kind of approach, as it is for a lot of new farmers.
2: Each of our farmers come to farming differently. Trish came from a natural resource management background and developed her love of farming through her desire to heal the landscape.
6: I'm Trish Smith. So I started becoming really interested in regenerative agriculture when I was working in a land care and environmental conservation role. Um, I started to get really curious about why we were only working on small remnants of native vegetation that were left in the landscape and really wanted to start thinking about how we could be working across the whole landscape to support ecological functioning, like improve water cycles and improve nutrient cycles. So growing our food, but doing that in a manner that supported ecological functioning.
2: Trish owns her home in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. She recently started a market garden in her backyard and is going to lease nearby land to run cattle. Part of her learning journey was joining Young Farmers Connect, a network for new and aspiring farmers.
6: It's taken two or three years of really intensive re-education, visiting farms, going to field days, attending training courses, to feel like I have enough knowledge to develop an agricultural business and a production system that's suitable for the land that we have available to us and that's also providing a product that our local community would be interested in. I think market gardening is really common within the Young Farmers Connect network because it's an access point to get into farming on a small scale. And so given the challenges in land access and the barriers to land ownership. That's a really common entry point. So we've spent two years of trial and error so that's really only on a few urban scale market garden beds. There was a time where I thought that it wasn't possible to farm on such a small scale but then I realised it's about doing what you can with what you have and so We can grow what we can on our 150 square metres and we're really lucky to be part of a community where we can buy meat and eggs and fruit off other growers.
1: Luke Winder from Tathra Place Free Range Farm near Goulburn in New South Wales is another Soils for Life case study. When his father passed away back in 2016, Luke decided to dramatically change careers from electrician to farmer.
7: I've only been doing this for probably six and a half years now, six years... I guess, full time. And before that, I was an elevator mechanic slash electrician in Sydney. I stumbled onto Joel Salatin on YouTube and you can't unsee Joel Salatin, I feel. That was how it all began. And you could say that it's snowballed quite severely since that day. We raise Japanese quail. We do breast chickens, completely free range. We do predominantly Hampshire saddleback heritage pig that we raise completely free range, uh, chemically free. We do Aussie white lambs, which I'm, I'm really happy with. Again, we, we've been able to do them chemically free, which is really exciting, even with the the weather we've had this year. And we do speckled park beef. So we've got, yeah, quite a few proteins that we're turning out. So the reason I feel that my farming system works so well is we've got the fertility from quail, the fertility from ducks, the fertility from chickens, the action of... Chickens and cows and cow patties, and all the amazing stuff that happens in that relationship. The sheep, the sheep for their level of grazing to allow pasture cropping. The cattle are the amazing thing that comes out their back end. And because of that incredibly robust system rotated, we can have a certain amount of swine within this system as almost a bit of a guilty pleasure, which I'm really proud of. That the Tathra place. Free range, the original property is only 100 acres, but it turns out between 4.2 and 4.8 tonne of animal protein a week, that's pretty phenomenal. We're feeding a lot of people. If every 100 acres in New South Wales were that efficient, we'd feed the world twice.
1: Luke left the comfort of the suburbs to purchase a degraded 100 acres, covered in blackberries with 10K in his pocket.
7: This place, when we bought it, was an absolute nightmare. It was the armpit of the entire region. So it's not like I got handed the most beautiful piece of land in the world. I started out here with 10 grand, 10 grand working capital. You know, there was no magic investor or we had no backing. Everything that we've bought, purchased and reinvested on this place is on the back of money we've made from this land. I've just purchased another property up the roads, another 150 acres. We're about to to lease a thousand acres on the other side of Crookwell, which is really exciting. Started another company called Integrity Agriculture, which is going to be focused on beef production, Speckled Park beef. Commonwealth Bank have come on board and given me a green loan, essentially given me free money. Taking on leased land that's owned by dentists, lawyers and orthodontists that want to shoot kangaroos and ride motorbikes. Let's get hold of that land and graze it regeneratively and do all the amazing things that come from that. Moving forward in that space is really exciting.
1: All these farmers have managed to find land to farm in different ways but not every emerging farmer is so fortunate. One of the barriers to farming that stood out loud and clear to Tanya is access to land and capital.
0: Starting a farm ain't a cheap thing to do, let alone establishing a farm after you've sort of surmounted the startup costs. Over 60% of our beginner farmers said that it would take up to 10 years and no less than two for their farming business to provide them with a livable income.
2: One of the huge challenges for farming in general is being able to access enough of the value chain, which is often gobbled up by other parts of the distribution network, whether that's the retailers or the wholesalers. But for new and young farmers, when they get started, they have to refine their business model to work out what's worked for them and where and their access to markets and so on they need often quite a long time before their profit stabilizes so having enough capital that you can survive for the first five to seven years as a business is another challenge
1: yeah and i think that's important to mention tanya said that 75 percent of current farmers don't earn enough to meet their business and their personal needs at the same time
2: and when there's just so much capital required to get started in farming, that becomes an extra challenge if you're trying to service debt on money you've borrowed to get started.
0: So some of the enablers and solutions that we heard in response to this capital challenge was to provide that access to capital, to set up dedicated beginner farmer grants, low and zero interest loans, patient capital, tax and rate concessions, and we sort of dive into this in
1: the report with some case studies of where this is already happening. While there are solutions to income challenges, closely linked to that is the cost of land.
0: Land prices are sky high and continuing to rise. Demand for rural land is increasing and the outlook is saying that that's not gonna change anytime soon. So if you can't buy into land, then a lot of us are looking at leasing it, but that brings with it a whole range of challenges from insecure tenure and the huge amount of investment agroecological growers put into their soil and then having to sort of up stumps and leave that if things fall apart. Some of the solutions we heard in relation to this access to land challenge is we need to protect our farmland. I think we've all heard that a lot, that we actually really need to do it this time in terms of protecting it from urban expansion and other development and non-farming uses. We need to be developing cooperative and community ownership models and land trusts and looking at other ways we can share existing farmland but also activate underutilised land.
8: There's there's pros and cons of leasing, there's pros and cons of owning. I think you've just got to find the sweet spot that's productive and, and works well.
1: That's Olivier Sofo from Living Earth Farms in the southern highlands of New South Wales. When he started his market garden, owning land wasn't an option. But he was okay with that because he'd lived and worked overseas on other farms that had leased land for generations.
8: You need to have healthy relationships with the landlords and how do you do that if you've just met them? Well you've got to use a bit of instinct and so when we met the current landlords, Mel and David, and understood that we were on the same page agriculturally and, and in other ways. We decided to take that lease. And look, we've been, like I said, I think four and a half years. They have been an absolute blessing and they have been an integral part of our success, not because they've gotten out and worked with us. They're busy in their own lives doing their own thing. It's because they've facilitated us to be completely free thinking, free reign, free decision-making on their farm. It's about people. I mean, you might find the best piece of land with water security and amazing microclimate and, you know, whatever, everything you've ever desired, but the relationship with the landowner is not healthy or potentially not healthy. It doesn't seem like they're the right people. My advice is to walk away. There's so many growers in Italy that are leasing land because people have owned that land for centuries. In Australia, it's we we feel this absolute need to own, 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 own. And I can get it, don't get me wrong, I mean, I, you know, I think it's, it's in all of us for sure. I mean, we, we want to know that we have some stability in our capital investment because when you go to start a farm or particularly a horticultural farm where you gonna might be putting up greenhouses, at least you're going to be putting irrigation in the ground, you've spent money on that property. You're putting money in the ground. So you, you want to know that there's some stability there, that it's not a terrible option as long as you can get a long, long-term lease in good conditions.
1: Olivier was able to find good landlords and land that worked for his farming needs. Luke Winder agrees that there is plenty of unused land on existing farms and we can increase food production dramatically by farming together. Luke is leasing land to a new farmer for $1 per year.
7: Sam's been with me for, I can't remember how long it was, and he wants to start his own garden and doesn't have two bob to rub together and uh, has all the knowledge and, and I just said, I've got my old football pitch, which is where I used to practice my kicking conversions, rugby league for all the tragics out there. Um, I had to sacrifice that. But essentially, it's, a, it's an acre of – it's next to the driveway. I was never going to do anything with it. And, yes, I, I, I do take it a lot further. Like, he's got accommodation and we've got a skid steer here, so I built all the beds for him. And, you know, I, I probably went a little bit further than what maybe even he was expecting.
2: By leasing land, it means that they can have enterprises operating on the property that they don't have the capacity to manage themselves. So the win there is that they get the ecological diversity from the different enterprise and that the win for the person who comes onto the land is they get access to land that would have been difficult to achieve otherwise. And by giving a helping hand, Luke is benefiting
7: too the idea of having a market gardener on site you should see what we eat it's unbelievable so i see real value in that and we've actually started working collaboratively now he does all my home subscription deliveries and stuff like that so it's it's better it's definitely mutually beneficial anyway anyway we need to hold people's hand through this doing it the way i did it is just the dumbest way of doing it and we need to make the path a little bit easier for for people that want to give it a go
0: on learning pathways for next-gen farmers are limited but also challenging in terms of having the financial resources to go and do an internship and not earn any money but they're also hugely challenging for host farmers again for financial and and time reasons
5: it's a, a funny thing agriculture it's it's something that there's a lot of information to find and a lot that you can be doing better but it's you know you really have to have that passion to go out and find that information it's it's easy just to do what you know and, and what you understand but but the real challenge is is getting out and, and learning new things and improving the way you do things because the science is always evolving and there's always a better way to do something generally is what I find so
1: Adam says there's plenty of information it's just a matter of finding it
2: Soils for Life has been trialing a, a process they're calling regenerative conversations and we 're looking for other ways to bring farmers together with farmers, so the learning can occur between peers.
1: Although a lot of farmers would like to be part of a community of practice, it's often hard to know how to find or create one.
5: Currently in a peer-to-peer learning group, which is great, so that's like a pastured farming-based group, not just chickens, but sort of any sort of pastured production systems. And yeah, that's, that's a, we're meeting once a week at the moment, and we're going to keep that going into the future probably once a month.
1: Being part of a group is about learning through shared experience. Trish, who we heard from earlier, is the Young Farmers Connect Greater Sydney Chapter Coordinator.
6: So Young Farmers Connect is a national community for young, new and aspiring farmers. Our organisation's motto is Together We Grow. So it's all about working in partnership and collaboration. So we have opportunities for education, we run field days, farm tours. Most of our activities are... I guess, from the ground up in that the local chapters design and deliver what the farmers in that area would like to do. What we're finding is there's a lot of people leaving metro areas wanting to reconnect to rural careers. It's about helping them to have the required insights and knowledge so they feel confident to be farming and to know that they are also tracking towards regenerating their land, their livelihood and their community.
1: For those looking for a degree in agriculture, Only 15 out of the 42 tertiary institutions in Australia offer ag courses. One of those is Southern Cross University and it is the first to offer a Regenerative Agriculture Diploma. However, Luke strongly believes that any training needs to be hands-on.
7: I love the fact that there's a a Regen University course but I I don't think university is the place to learn this. It's 95% practical. It's a trade. That's right. It's a trade. And it should be a bloody recognized trade. So I want to flood this industry with regen farmers. Let's give them the assistance they're going to need when they're kicking off. And let's show the world essentially that this is an industry that's robust. You can earn a white collar salary doing this. You can live an amazing lifestyle. You can be healthy and you can eat incredible food and surround yourself with young, enthusiastic, energetic people.
2: Luke is inspired by regenerative farmer Joel Salatin and his philosophy of creating opportunities to farm collectively.
7: I love Joel Salatin's model where be an intern and then if you love it, be an apprentice. And if you love it, with you, I will hold your hand. I will lease you land. I will give you capital to start the fencing. That's what I want to do. I want to take someone that is genuinely interested and has the initiative and the drive to do this I'm going to say, righto, what do you want to do first? Okay, you want to run chickens, turkeys and rabbits. Great. You probably only need 50 acres, at least 50 acres. Here's 500 metres of poultry netting. Here's an energizer. Um, let's lay some pipe. Let's get some infrastructure in the ground and actually give these young people an opportunity and back them the whole way and hold their hand because that's what it needs. This is This is not something you can do a two-week course on and then just go and have a crack. I've just started a trainee here. I've told him, mate, this is four years. If you're not going to give me four years, I'm not going to get you anywhere near close to the point where you're going to be able to have a crack at this on your own at any level. Dane, his name is, and his dad was one of my first customers ever at the farmer's market. And I said, mate, if you really want to do this, come and do it with me and I'll show you how to do it properly. The key to a successful
1: traineeship is a good mentor. Starting her own business, Harriet had her parents and their library.
4: I mean, I owe a lot to my parents learning-wise. We've always had a big bookshelf in the house just full of books on farming and soil health. And you do have to wear a lot of hats, which is fun, which that's what keeps it interesting as well. (laughs) I have said to my dad before because dad can be a little bit old school in the way where you have to learn how to do all these different things just in case anything ever happens but there's been a few times that I've been in a bit of a pickle and I've just YouTube something quickly <laughs> and that's very handy.
7: No, I'd never stepped foot on a farm. I could weld and I could use tools and I had some sales experience which is wonderful in hindsight and one of the smartest things I ever did was start going and playing lawn bowls on a Friday afternoon. Every bloke in there has got 45 years experience in farming. You check your ego at the door, you buy them all a schooner. You've got them there. You've got them stuffed for two hours. You can ask them as many questions as you want. They can't get away. And I learn a lot that way. And then these are the sort of guys that will say to you, do you know what? When your heifers are dropping, I'll come out. If you have an issue, I'll come out. You know, that's how I learned to pull calves. And it's an incredible community out here. So I'm pretty lucky.
1: Storytelling is one of the most powerful learning tools. Our Indigenous communities have carried their stories of how to care for these lands through centuries and recognise that a yarn can be more valuable than any course.
3: For me, I I think that connectivity is important. Reaching out to Elders who have got, you know, 60-plus thousand years of stories to actually tell you and guide you through that. I was fortunate last year I did a men's camp and we met with this awesome lady from up near Coffs Harbour who was telling us a dreaming story that was 27,000 years old around the way in which the land had moved and how it had formed and the role of the sea and the impacts of climate change even back then, really.
1: In the face of climate change with degraded lands and a farmer's shortage, we may need to rethink our food production systems. We are a very individualistic society, whereas all the farmers in this episode can see a different world where collaboration and community is key.
3: So if you think about the word agriculture or even colonisation, both of those very loosely mean to cultivate. Um, And there's this kind of natural progression of cultivation, fencing and then livestock. And with that kind of westernised view throughout the Age of Enlightenment as to where that kind of narrative came from, you then turn this filter on us to then, well, we need to colonise or cultivate the landscape we, we do that step first, we, you know, we dig it all up, we knock down trees, that kind of attitude. And I guess through my eyes, it's our role and responsibility as Indigenous people to help uncolonize that kind of thinking, but also really step back and say, well, how does our Indigenous knowledge interweave with that? And what has that adaptability been over the last 200 plus years to then think about what future agricultural systems look like?
0: Social challenges are another big one in terms of the isolation that many farmers face. If they're needing to access affordable farmland, usually they have to move away from the city and away from communities. But then there's a whole bunch of challenges as well around entering farming from outside a rural or farming family. But also this is magnified 10 times over if you don't fit the stereotypical white male farmer. There can be some real challenges around the sense of belonging and, and welcoming in the farming community
4: we would be more than happy to have other people come and and have their own enterprise here that really links in with everything else we do. I love the idea of that sort of sense of community. It's a bit tricky because it is hard to get people out here because of the location. So if anyone listening to this wants to go live way out west, more than welcome to.
1: To move from the suburbs to the country was a big move, but the farming life called Luke Winder and his family. As an outsider, he started out by farming differently with chooks and pigs in a region that's always been sheep and cattle. While his approach created a stir in the pub, his overall experience has been a positive one.
7: When you move to the country and you start farming, every single person you've ever known wants to come and stay with you. right? So I see my friends and the people that are close to me in Sydney, I probably see them more often now. They love coming out. The social aspect of a country town is phenomenal.
1: Luke has plenty of connections with other local farmers and chefs but one thing he has observed is a disconnect between farmers and consumers which he believes can have an impact on well-being.
7: I feel one of the things that's missing in in agriculture is the feedback loop. These farmers that raise 400 beautiful black steers every year and work their guts out and then the truck just arrives and they disappear they wouldn't know where they go. They wouldn't know what sale yard they're going to. They wouldn't know who buys them. They wouldn't know who's consuming them. There's no feedback loop. And we wonder why there's such an issue with depression and suicide in agriculture. Well, these poor people work their guts out their whole lives and get absolutely no feedback from. So I think that's one big thing that's missing. And that's one of the amazing things about most people within Regen do understand where their food's ending up and they are receiving that feedback loop. And I think that's a wonderful part of our industry, I guess.
1: Transparency is a key value for all the farmers in this episode in terms of building a relationship with the community and sharing about why they farm the way they do.
4: Definitely very passionate about it. I love the idea of people not only knowing where their food comes from but being proud about it. Farmers should be proud to produce it and there should be that complete transparency between how we're raising animals here, and the people that are buying them, so out here, like the closest chicken meat or eggs is four five hundred kilometers away. There's just nothing out in this area, which I find crazy because it's sort of the perfect environment to run chickens it's It's a shame because like it's it is sad to see that the only products in town get shipped out from Sydney, and I just think there should be local people eating local food. I'd love to see a lot of local food on the shelves and I hope that that does happen but I'm going to try and make sure that at least I can do my part in that and grow what we can here to to offer to people. Be selling food like on the local shelves in town of the two shops, they're both interested in having it and I just need to, to have enough now to, <laughs> to be able to give them the supply.
2: Chickens have presented an opportunity for these producers to to get started without needing a lot of capital. Like Luke and Adam, Harriet began by selling eggs from pasture-raised hens, as this not only adds nitrogen back to the soil, but is a low-cost option for a startup and provides an instant cash flow.
4: At the start of the COVID lockdowns, I was trying to get started up with the chickens and look for some chicks to start off with. And there's just not really anyone close to me that I would be able to, to buy a certain amount to start off with. And then I was on Gumtree looking and then found out about like people sending fertile eggs through the post. And I don't know why, but that never occurred to me that you could really do that. And I thought, well, I'll buy an incubator and I'll buy some eggs because at least, you know, if they can just come in a box in the mail, it's a lot better than trying to get chickens freighted here and start that way. And, yeah, it just surprised me how quickly they did come in the post and how easy it was. And so that was definitely a good way to start off. But now I'm I'm hatching my own from those chickens that I originally started with.
2: While it helped Luke get started in farming... Luke eventually had to give up his egg business due to red tape.
7: The reason I don't do eggs anymore is because I had an inspector arrive here after the Salmonella debacle in Victoria, Victoria, which had nothing to do with the family farm or regen farms or people that have 2,000 hens stand in front of my sheds and say, well, you're going to have to set up production zones and non-production zones. There's an imaginary line here and... Your delivery trucks can come in and if they want to cross that line, you'll need a, a car washing bay and you'll have to wash the truck down. And as we're speaking, my son rode his motorbike pass. And I said, so does that mean my son gets off his motorbike and washes his motorbike every time he wants to cross this imaginary line? Yeah. I said, right. I said, what if he's riding his horse across this imaginary line? Yeah, yeah, he'd have to wash the horse down and wash the hoofs. And I looked at this eye in the eyes and I said, are you insane, mate? I said, can you appreciate you're just destroying the family farm here? Not to mention that this is the exact legislation that you arrive one day a year and I comply and then you drive up the driveway and I pull all the signs out and we just continue doing exactly what we were doing. And he said, yeah, I know, but as long as you comply when I'm here. I mean, it's just absurd. The idea of breaking down a multi-speciated family farm of 100 acres into production and non-production zones, it's physically impossible. It was ridiculous. And and it's legislation that was put in place and rules that were put in place for factory farming confinement egg production models. And then they then tried to just use the exact same legislation on pastured free-range egg models. And it was just absolutely absurd. Why Over the Fence is driving. He's he, He's mid-conversation with me telling me what I need to do. And my neighbours just driving around with his spray rigs, rig spraying out tons of glyphosate on a windy day. It's it's arse about. I think we all know that. And I'm not I'm not too worried about stuff like that. You can't you can't dwell on that. Find out what you can do and you can do well and pursue that passionately.
2: Luke was in
7: a position to
2: change his enterprises because he already had built up other businesses. While clearly biosecurity and food safety is a serious issue. There are many instances where the requirements designed for large businesses are so expensive for small businesses that they can't get started.
1: Adam and his family are facing a different legislative hurdle, one that is impacting their succession planning.
5: One of the huge barriers at the moment, this is not about getting new farmers in, but as opposed to keeping existing farmers. Uh, And I think this problem is specific to the ACT. But at the moment in the ACT, it's very, very difficult to get a lease adjustment that allows families to put another house on the block. What happens is that families that have a house on a, on a farm, there's, there's no scope for the children to build a house on the farm and continue farming. Uh, it's a huge barrier at the moment and something that the RLA is, is really interested in, in working with the government on.
1: When it comes to succession planning, Adam says you can't start too early, but you can definitely start too late.
5: There's what some people call a glide path. And, and that's sort of what you do within a family to understand where people want to be in one year, five years, 10 years, as a sort of basic framework. And so I know my parents, they want to be here for as, as long as they possibly can be. And we're just going through the sort of process of understanding what my sister would like to do and what my brother would like to do. Like it, it, it's great to know, you know, in five years, I want to be on the farm, but in 10 years, I want to be living on the coast. And so, yeah, just, just understanding everyone's expectations and, and where they would like to be in the future is is critical to, to getting that ball rolling. And my brother and I, obviously, I'm interested in agriculture and, and, and all of that because I've managed the egg business. But my brother's just getting into it now. He, he likes the idea and he's starting to grow some veggies and some greens and things, whereas my sister is a nurse and has a young son. So she sees in a very different sort of... Uh, group to us, if you like. So we're we're in the lucky position where we're a really tight knit family group. And so we can talk about these things and we can talk about money and people's futures and, and all of this sort of stuff in an open way. And so I imagine it would be close to impossible otherwise. It'd be lots of lawyers and all sorts of messy things that it's not a not a great way to start that that journey. But I would I would preface all of this with that it's we're, we're right at the beginning of our succession journey. We're like uh, you know, maybe a couple of months in where typically people have told us that it's a sort of 12-month journey to to sort of get an initial handle on succession. And then, you know, it's something that you look at every year and until you actually need to use it. Succession planning doesn't sort of, you don't have a period where the the parents look after the farm and then you get a clean break and then the kids look after the farm. You get a, a transition between the two. And so part of what we're doing at the moment with our business coach is just understanding what each person does in the farm at the moment and then start to shift the responsibilities from mum and dad onto the kids. Because if something was to happen to mum and dad tomorrow, the farm would fall apart because I don't know everything of what dad does. Um, And so what we're doing is starting, uh, you know, like he's getting his books into a position where I can start managing the books And then he starts saying that I'm not going to do any more spraying. So you guys have to work out how to do the spraying. And then, you know, over the next period of years, we'll absorb all of those jobs that he does so that the transition is smooth. So that's, that's something that's really, really interesting that that's come out of that. And what happens in that transition as well is that you get a transition of values. So Dad really values having the property like a clean biosecurity zone, he values knowing who's on the farm and, and whether or not they're trustworthy and all of those, those things, which are his values and, and they're passed on to my brother and I and, and the kids generally. But what happens is that there is a shift in values where Guy and I might be more open to the idea of having people use parts of the property to generate some passive income. And so you need to also discuss these changing values, these transition of values that you get from a younger generation as, as it takes over from the older generation. And so a really, really interesting point that, that really needs slow and gentle, well-documented discussion about it. It doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, but it's, uh, it absolutely has to happen.
1: Another challenge faced by new and emerging farmers is around ecological and climate-related issues. 86%
0: of beginner farmers stated that they're having to rethink their farm management practices and business viability because of increased variability of, um, and impact of extreme weather events. And we also heard that this is having, you know, a real emotional toll on our next farming generation looking to the future. But kind of alongside these negatives was it's also acting as real motivation for a lot of new farmers because it feels like getting their hands in the earth and growing food for community and regenerating soil is one of the most meaningful things we can do in the current global situation. You know, for generations that have grown up in the age of climate change being an experienced reality and bushfires and heatwaves and flood events and you want to find something that you can like tangibly do with your body, with your hands, with your head to repair the damage. And so I think the sort of incredible pull of regenerative agriculture for our next generation is the fact that this is one of the most like in powerful and impactful way that we can deal with the sort of planetary crisis that we're facing, whether it's climate change, whether it's biodiversity loss, whether it's the state of our oceans and water quality and things that's sort of like there's this direct, tangible, visceral, physical thing we can do. But also I think it's the reconnection with nature and with the land that, you know, which we all evolved with and as urban nations have moved away from. But there's a, there's a very deep hunger in all of us for that
6: and of hearing that and seeing that so strongly in our next generations as well. I think right now farming is a really positive space to be in. It's empowering to be working on solutions. It's a really practical way to have an impact, uh, like a local practical impact. You can literally monitor your production system, increasing the level of carbon in your soil. I didn't tell you about my soil. Like my soil... Since I've started, in two years, I've seen over a 3% increase in soil carbon. I think from a policy perspective, I would really encourage policymakers to get involved in holistic management and maybe undertake holistic management training. I think the holistic management framework offers a real opportunity to create policy that's good for people, the environment and our economy.
2: A lot of people are looking for work to do that's fun and aligns with their values.
6: Yeah, and I can really
1: see that that's been Harriet's experience. She sees that if the future of farming
4: is regenerative, then it may attract more of her friends back to their family farms. It might be a bit controversial, but I do think farming regeneratively is a lot more fun and exciting and rewarding than farming industrially. I know a lot of people do love driving around in tractors, but I think if you're driving a tractor on a monoculture crop, I could be wrong, some people might enjoy it, but I feel like if you were to get out and sit down and have a sandwich or have your lunch and you're sitting there surrounded by not a lot of biodiversity, it's a bit different to here where there's a lot of plants, a lot of animals. It's yeah. I just think that there's something in us that enjoys that more. I mean, it has to be better for you. (laughs) I feel like if you're farming regeneratively and you're making things better and it's actually exciting to like get up in the morning and and go do what you do I've always loved the idea of having multiple enterprises of different animals all like working towards the same thing and that solve the problems you have for each of them and my parents want the business to be a place that I find exciting to be in and I'd want to continue that for one day when I have kids like I want it to keep getting better and better and and building different enterprises and having it be a place that you do want to keep going and i know there's that quote that says we don't inherit land from our ancestors we borrow it from our children and yeah that's i think anyone in the region farming space would think very much along those lines as well with what they do
1: josh as a young indigenous farmer what do you see as your role
3: what I see my role in life is I forecast out and think about well, what does the next 60,000 years look like for our people? Where are my people are here? And I'm one person and I play a really minute role in that 120,000 year journey, You know, 60,000 years on either side. But if I can do enough now to unlock a small amount to enable that conversation for the next 60,000 years, then that's the bit that's important for me.
1: Looking to the future and how to support our next generation of farmers, we need to ask ourselves, what really matters? Do we want clear running water
0: in our rivers and estuaries and lakes and oceans? Do we want forests and biodiversity? Do we want nutrient dense local food and the security of fresh food supply to withstand global shocks? If we do want these things, then we need to be supporting and growing an extra regenerative farming generation. And wherever we sit, there's a role that we can play in this. So we kind of need to get moving on that as well, because the clock's ticking.
1: This podcast has been produced by Grow Love Project in collaboration with Soils for Life and is supported through funding from the Australian Government's Smart Farms Program. The episode was mixed and edited by Edgar Sgreste, and we'd like to thank all our guests for their time and insights. For more information, check out the links in the show notes. Sign up to the Source for Life newsletter and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.